Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Oh, I've got some, uh, some good news for you and I've got some bad news for you. The bad news is that I did have a film clip to show you this morning and unfortunately because the laptop's being stupid, um, I can't uh, play it for you. The good news is that means it cuts the preach by five minutes, so it's only going to be about an hour and 25 now. <laughs> <coughs> so there I was. I was uh, sitting in a chair with a cat on my lap in Owen's house and the cat was dribbling all over me because it's, a, it's the cat that when you stroke it, it dribbles. <laughs> and uh, so my trousers are sopping wet and uh, I'm sitting there and listening to Owen and Owen says to me, Joel, uh, have you got any ideas of what you want to preach on uh, in, in a couple of weeks? And uh, I said, uh, in, in, in not so many words, yeah. Um, <laughs> And because uh, uh, a few months ago, I, I would think to myself, if I preach again, what's I going to preach on? And I thought, Daniel, uh, Jonah, Nehemiah again, Jonah, Zacchaeus, Jonah. And Jonah kept coming back into my mind, and I, I, I couldn't quite understand it. So I sort of planned in my head a, a preach uh, for Jonah. Anyway, I'm sitting there talking with Owen. I decided not to mention this, and uh, he says, uh, well, he flips through his Bible, he says, well, let me find something for you to do. Uh, uh, oh, um, how a husband should submit to his wife. Yeah, that, that, that'd be good, wouldn't it? No, a husband should submit to his wife. Tell you what, let's reverse that. A wife should submit to her husband. There we go. Um, it was funny at the time, um, because uh, he actually said it right. Um, <laughs> oh, this is a wonderful start to the preach. Um, and then he turned to, to another book, he said, Jonah. I said, ah, it's funny you should say that, because I was thinking that a couple of months ago, and it kept going round and round and round in my head, and I just didn't want to do it, because uh, it had too much to pull out of me. I didn't know what, really what I could do. He said, all right, well, I'll give you Jonah then. So I'm fine. So this is my preach on Jonah. Now, uh, just to, to warn you, I have been studying this uh, a fair bit, and there's so much that can be pulled out of it. It's incredible. Um, and I wasn't entirely certain where to go with it. So as I was writing it, I was writing it in different ways and, and branching off here, there and everywhere. And I tried to condense it as best as possible. I apologise if it sounds a bit messed up, but um, it, it does all come back in the end. Just trying to keep up with me. So I know I'll try. Anyway, <coughs> if you could turn to Jonah with me, that would be lovely if you have your Bibles. Chapter 1, verse 1. Jonah flees from the Lord. The word of Jonah, the word of the Lord, sorry, came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Can everyone hear me, by the way? Yeah, good, okay. Poor you. (coughs) Now this is one of uh, two things that Jonah's most famous for having done. He ran away from the Lord. Now, a bit of background about Jonah... He was, uh, he was born in Israel, uh, just north of uh, Nazareth in a place called Gath-Hefer. If you could pull up the map, that would be great. A um, place called Gath-Hefer, uh, referred to in uh, 2 Kings uh, 14.25. It says, uh, he, that is King Jeroboam II, 
was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lever Hamath to the Sea of Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet of Gathepa. Now, if I can remember what the matter is there, so I think he was born round about here-ish. Nazareth just Um now the verse suggests, uh, the verse in uh, 2 Kings, sorry, suggests that Jonah had spoken uh, words and prophecies over various peoples in the Old Testament before. You know, he wasn't a stranger to understanding the word of God. He was able to listen to it, he could, uh, he could hear it, and he followed through with the commands that were set before him. So here we find a man declared uh, a prophet of the Lord, uh, a man who would do all and give all uh, for the sake of God. So doesn't it strike us as a little bit odd to hear that in the first three verses, in the first 37 words of his own book, that he's run away from the Lord? In response to a command that's been given to him. I mean, isn't it deemed a non-too-auspicious start that a prophet of of the Lord begins his story by saying that he did not do what God wanted him to do? A man of God ignoring God. I mean, does, does that make sense to you? The answer's no. <clears throat> um, I, I think there are some people in this room who, who give their right arm to hear that, 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 that the voice of God you know, on a regular basis, you know, daily, weekly, monthly. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not talking about feelings and inklings. You know, I'm talking about the clear, resounding, booming whisper of the Lord our God, the creator of the universe and the lover of mankind. I mean, wouldn't we give anything to hear that, that clear command? I mean, I think clarity is something that we all thrive on. You know, if we know what, we're, what we have to do with absolute certainty, with fewer qualms about doing it. If it's just a feeling, it could be any number of things pulling at the heartstrings. And it's not unlike what Colin was uh, preaching about in July, uh, about the devil's peanuts, falling in the trail of the devil's peanuts. Dry roasted. Um, Jonah has that privilege. God spoke to him so clearly. God trusts him and he trusts God. So it begs the question, why did Jonah run? Now there are two parts to that question. What was he running from? And what in the world made him think that that God wouldn't find him? Now this preacher's going to answer neither of those questions because in the grand scheme they aren't important enough to answer. And I'll, uh, I'll explain why shortly. So, uh, the journey in the story, I know a lot of you will, will know the story of Jonah, but I'm going to go over it again with a few uh, figures that I've, uh, I've found out. So, uh, he travelled a fair way to be away from Nineveh. Now, I don't know why he did that. The word states are that Jonah ran away from the Lord, but it doesn't exactly say why he ran away. Uh, it is something I'd like to discuss with anyone uh, on an informal basis, if people are up for a bit of a discussion about it. Uh, the actual running element of it, I don't quite understand. He could have stayed in Nineveh and not done the job. But that's just something that I'll, I'll talk about another time with you guys. Um, now, I doubt that uh, his running away involved much running. Uh, Jonah, it says, went from Gath-Hefer and travelled all the way south to Joppa, the nearest appropriate port. worth of journey on foot. Um, it would have taken a little over a day, 24 hours, non-stop, on foot, to get to that port. Now in chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now researchers aren't entirely certain where that is. Some suggest it could have been uh, the city of Tar- Tartessus, sorry, in southern Spain. Others put forward that it might have been uh, the name for Tarsus, a city in southern Asia Minor. There is a Tarsus up here, actually, um, which uh, people wonder if... I mean, that could be the southern Asia Minor, I'm not entirely certain. Um, so no one really, really knows uh, where it was that he was trying to get to uh, but at the end of the day 
it doesn't matter, because the fact was he tried to get there and he didn't. Now Jonah jumped on a ship and it states quite clearly that he paid the fare. He paid to be away from God. Weird. And it's not a wonder that God got a bit stroppy with him. But the ship he was sailing on can't have got that far, as it says in verse 13 of chapter 1. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew wilder than before. Than before sorry. So they were far enough away from land to be caught up in a dreadful storm, but not so far away that they couldn't row back. So in theory, by this time, Jonah's probably travelled about 80 miles on foot, and anywhere between 10 and 50 miles by boat, perhaps more. So he's, let's say he's travelled roughly 100 miles. And God points his finger at him and he says, Peekaboo, I see you. <laughs> Just to clarify, by the way, um, I actually I, I find it very interesting to see how far people will go to, to do the work or to avoid the work uh, of God. I mean, I'm not that keen on facts and figures on the whole. But these ones I, I think are quite impressive. I, I don't know about you. Uh, I thought you just might be interested in the mileage you manage. Perhaps it's just me. <coughs> well, the mileage. Uh, well, roughly... Like I say, he travelled about uh, 80 miles on foot from, uh, from, from here to here, roughly. And um, as regards boat, we don't know how far he got, but like I say, because the storm hit, it could have been anywhere between 10 and 50 miles. Maybe more. Um, anyway, moving on. Uh, and this is the thing that never really occurred to me, actually. Jonah says to the sailors in verse 12 of chapter 1, before they start to row back, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault and this, that this great storm has come upon you. And the sailors, reluctant at first, hardly surprising, chuck him overboard. They think he's a dead man. Jonah doesn't expect God to save him because he's disobeyed him, so he thinks himself a dead man. This means that Jonah, in essence, tried to kill himself. And there's nothing to say that suggests that, that God was going to save Jonah, and it was only by Jonah's prompting that he was thrown overboard. That's the way I look at that. Yeah, I, I, I could be so very, very, very wrong in this approach. Um, but I look at it as seeing a prophet of the Lord attempting suicide. Um, if anyone wants to contest me on that, do it later. Um, I could be very wrong, though. Remember, this is, this is what I've drawn from this, from, from this, uh, from this book, from Jonah's life. You know, take away from this, preach what you will. Anyway, God sends a fish to swallow Jonah up. This being the second famous part of Jonah's story. And in doing so, it, it calms the storm, which makes the sailors really happy and ultimately opens their eyes to Christianity, all in a day's work. Now, whilst in this giant fish, Jonah does nothing but pray. I mean, who wouldn't, knowing that you've been an hors d'oeuvre for a whale? Um, and thus far survived. After three days, God gives the fish to Homer and casts Jonah up onto the beach. And there and then, Jonah drops to his knees and thanks God for the grace that's been shown to him. And then he trundles off to Nineveh. Well, I don't know whether he's going to be happy or not in doing it. But let me take an example. If I, when I was younger, uh, if I was asked by my father to mow the lawn, uh, and I said that I wouldn't, he might have docked my pocket money and insisted on doing it before he docked more. Now I'd do it, but I wouldn't be particularly happy about doing it. However, to run that exactly parallel to this story, God bestows grace on Jonah and everything returns to what it was like at the beginning of the book, in essence. I would therefore get my full amount of pocket money Am I still happy to mow the lawn? Well, I don't know. I mean, I didn't want to do it in the first place, but I lost pocket money and then was giving it back. So I, I have reason to be happy. But I've still got to do what I didn't want to do. I think it's probably down to the individual. Jonah uh, is going to Nineveh. Is he happy about it? I don't know. But his comments in, uh, in chapter 4 uh, of the book suggest that perhaps he wasn't. But we'll skirt over that in a bit. 
Now, assuming that the fish coughed him up at the nearest point to Nineveh, on the coast, it would take Jonah roughly a fortnight to, uh, to get there. Now, that's 13 hours in the car, I've worked out. Um, that's how sad I am. It's like walking from Penzance in Cornwall to Dundee in Scotland via Hull. Um, around 742 miles at the minimum distance. Um, now, all I can say is that they must have pretty hardy sandals. Because when I typed it into the computer for the British equivalent, uh, it, took, it said it would take five days to go from Penzance to Plymouth, and then it cheated, saying you'd take a boat from France, to France, sorry, then to Ireland, then to another part of France, then to Hull, then back to the same part of France, then up to Edinburgh, and then walk from there to Dundee. They just couldn't figure out why someone would walk that distance. But he did. Jonah walked, and he walked, and he walked, and he walked, and when he got to Nineveh, he walked some more. So, looking at the map, now I, I worked it out, I worked out that over here is the nearest point, which would mean that the whale, if it came from there and went out that way, the whale would have been there, he would have sailed and swam all over and got to here, and then spat him out, and then he'd have walked all the way to the middle, which is here. Um, alternatively, he could have got to here and walked over that way, and it would have been even longer. Um, so whatever it is, Jonah walked a fair distance. It apparently took him three days to get around Nineveh, spreading the word of God. And ironically, all the non-believers responded immediately to the word of God, which is about a lot more than Jonah did. But that's for another time. Three days around Nineveh. It's not too dissimilar from the three days he spent in the whale. Now, we can't be sure what size the city was, because we're not sure when he went. But around 824 BC, it would have apparently been about the size of Cantley, with Brampton on the side. Apparently had about 12 kilometer perimeter. And that would have been in this dark green bit here. That is what the Assyrians had taken over by 824 BC. Moving on, uh, between this time and 745 BC, which is where the green bit is, that's what the Assyrians had taken over. Oh no, sorry, it's 671. So a little bit, uh, little bit less. I think actually, I think they took the Egyptian bit later on, so I think it's probably just this bit. Um, it says that uh, Nineveh grew to have a 62-mile perimeter. Now that, um, roughly, is the space that we are in now as a town, uh, surrounded by the motorway. So M18, M62, A1M. Um, it was a huge expanse. And somewhere between one extreme and the other, Jonah showed up. That's me facts and figures. Hope you appreciate it. <coughs> Now, why did, he take the, why did he make the wrong choice? Jonah had the choice to obey or disobey. And when I looked at Jonah as a child, I was always taught that he was afraid to do the job. You know, Jonah was so afraid that he ran away. You know, that's one of the main factors behind running away from something. I was taught that he was afraid of the job and ultimately afraid of God. Now, having read the book over again and done some research behind it, I find that this may not be the case. And allow me to explain. Nineveh was full of people who were doing a number of things that displeased God. It was also full of people who weren't Israelites. And now these are two things that, following the history behind Jonah, seem to upset him. It says at the end of the book that Jonah was angry with God for having saved them. So let's look at it a different way. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Ignore the fact that he ran away. That's a separate story in itself. Jonah said no when God asked him to warn the Ninevites of their plight. He didn't go to Nineveh because he didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. Now, this opens up a whole load of more questions for me. I mean, who would pass up on the opportunity 
knowing that not everyone had the gift of clarity when interpreting the voice of God, uh, would, 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 would pass it up. Who in their right mind would disobey a direct command from God? Not only that, but who would be so callous as to wish death and destruction upon a, a city and ultimately an empire? You know, at the end of the day, they're still people. But were they God's people? You know, Jonah, it seems, didn't think so, or didn't want to think so. Now, the Assyrians at that time had been decimating the surrounding nations, you know, overtaking them by violent means, as you can see. You know, over the course of 100, 150 years, they took over that entire expanse, and that's a huge, huge expanse. They were a strong threat to the Israelites. They'd been worshipping a completely different God. They were living in sin daily. They'd been persecuting God's children. Surely they deserve complete destruction. No. God at this time had begun saving the Gentiles, forgiving them of their ignorance. And Jonah didn't like it. This is ironic, as he was well-renowned for his acute understanding of the almighty deity. Perhaps that's why he felt he could contest it. But I, I know what you're trying to do, God, and I'm telling you now, it's not a good idea. Let them stew in their own juices. So let's assume for the moment that Jonah feels that the Ninevites aren't worth saving. Let's assume that Jonah feels himself important enough to discern who can be a child of God and who can't. Now, as I said, some would say he had an acute understanding uh, of God. He was so in tune with him that he could tell what God was going to do next. Now, when the command came to save Nineveh, Jonah knew that it was the right thing to do, but it just didn't sit well with him. Let's, uh, let's think logically about this. Jonah probably hasn't seen any carnage like that of the Assyrians. I mean, they were bad people, you know, bloodthirsty, nasty people. Jonah's probably heard tales and rumours of, uh, of their cult-like rituals and traditions and may have known people who died at their hands. It's quite possible that he's scared out of his wits. He, could, he couldn't possibly face them if, if they were this nasty and evil. Truthfully, anything that's upset God this much can't be good. So, what makes God think that people who would cut your head off without a moment's thought would listen to Jonah saying that a God they don't believe in would cast a lightning bolt down on them and kill them all because they're doing what they enjoy doing. Because he's God. But, if I'm honest, I don't think I could go up to a crowbar-wielding football hooligan and say, look pal, you're doing an evil thing there, and I've been told that you're going to go up in a cloud of smoke in the next few weeks if you don't get your act together. You know, I may come away from that with, without an ear, most probably with concussion. However, if God's told me to do it, who am I to say no? This football hooligan, much as he or she may have cracked open a few heads in their time, they are still God's creation. And they need to be given the chance to realise that that's the case and turn away from the violence and, and all, all the other stuff they've done. So why did Jonah ignore Nineveh? I mean, I don't know what was going through Jonah's mind at the time, but I reckon he felt scared hard done by, alone. I mean, I've spent the past quarter of an hour, 20 minutes now, just giving you facts, figures, posing questions, but at the end of the day, are they the important part of the account? Not really, no. Uh, who really cares that Jonah ignored God? Who cares that he ran away? We can learn from it, certainly, but it's not important. What's important is that when it all came out in the wash, he did what he was told, despite his attempts to do otherwise. He prayed and he listened. I mean, in history, his name has gone down as the stupid prophet who thought that he could outrun God. 
But his name shouldn't go down as the stupid prophet. He made every effort to keep away from his task. Does that make him stupid? No. It makes him determined, but determined for the wrong reasons. He walked, he paid, he sailed, and finally when it came to crunch time, he tried to kill himself to avoid going to Nineveh. He did not want to carry out this task. But as a result, he disobeyed God, and that is a sin. Admittedly, this is something we, we probably all do, perhaps not knowingly, but Jonah was not unused to carrying out tasks for God, as it says in Kings 2. Not only this, but he left in the mercy of a vengeful God, this city that had no hope of ever realising the truth behind their creation, and their chance to be saved. Jonah was not a good man in that respect. But, does that make him evil? Was it because he was selfish? Was it because he was proud? Or perhaps confused, or lazy, or scared? I mean, who truly knows? But in any of these respects, none of us in this room are good in one way or another. So, Jonah ran because he didn't want to see Nineveh get the God treatment. But the most important part of the account, the most important part of the account, is that by the grace and mercy of God, he was able to deliver that God treatment. Now, I just want to demonstrate how I think uh, Jonah felt. Uh, do any of you have siblings in here? Yeah. We have a few, yeah, yeah. Uh, do any of you who have siblings uh, ever have rivalries? Sort of little rivalries? Or big rivalries? That's entirely up to you. I'm the eldest of, uh, of four. And much to the behest of my parents, more often than not, uh, I was the most childish. And in many respects, I still am. I can't rely on my intelligence, so uh, I have to rely on my childlike uh, personality to get by in life. Anyway, way back when, myself and my younger sister and my two younger brothers uh, would argue over the most mundane things, as children do. Now, Cocoa Pops were one of the biggest causes of these arguments. Peter, my youngest, uh, not my youngest, <laughs> really should have thought about that before I said it. Peter, my youngest brother, would have been able to talk and reason unreasonably. So that would, uh, would, that would have placed him at about four or five years old, which means that uh, I'd have been about 13, uh, Mary 12, and Asher about seven. Is our age important? Sort of. I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But you're probably wondering more as to uh, what, where I'm going with the story about Cocoa Pops. Um, I'll come to that too. So I'm in secondary school now. Alongside my sister, who's just recently joined up, Asher and Peter are still quite young. Peter uh, wants stuff, and he doesn't understand why he can't have it. And Ash is at an age where silently stuffing Milky Way bars down his trouser leg will serve as a nice midnight feast. But he got caught. He stuffed too many down and they fell out the bottom. Um, seven of them. Incredible. So, my mum's been to the shops. And she doesn't like getting chocolate cereal. You know, it's not, not as good for you as uh, Weetabix or shredded wheat. Of course, we're children. We, we don't care about how we just want chocolate. So... Mum decides that she's going to buy one box of chocolate cereal every week alongside some fruit and fibre. Now, one box between four children is asking for trouble. The reason uh, I became so fat in my youth, and to a certain degree still am, was because I was, uh, I was eating two uh, bowls of cereal every day. You know, I, I, would, uh, I would have one in the morning, and when I came home from school, I'd have another one. Sometimes I'd hide a bowl of cereal in the evening. Uh, you know, just finishing, up, finishing it off and uh, just as everyone else is coming, down, coming to, downstairs for breakfast having their toast and their Weetabix and their uh, no Cocoa Pops I would uh, proudly produce my Cocoa Pops from the microwave or wherever and I'd sit down and I'd start scoffing it and they'd go, no! 
Mary and Peter tweeted that if they got up early, they could, uh, they could get the first bowl of, of the day. And who knows, they, they might manage another one before everyone else woke up. Asher wasn't so clever, which is ironic because he's got the highest grades of the family. But uh, he would come downstairs, open up the chocolate cereal, and proceed to complain when he found that there was nothing in there. However, uh, if he did get some, he would pile it really, really high above the brim of the bowl, and, uh, and we'd be on the edge of our seats watching him as he tried to precariously eat it, and, you know, it was like a game of Jenga. Now, for years and years, this went on, piling our bowls higher and higher. When Peter found he couldn't eat much cereal, he'd leave half a bowl of uh, soggy cocoa pops, but he would always fill it right up to the top anyway, so that no one else could have any. Mum and Dad very rarely tasted the flavour of cocoa pops. But then I, I started to value my lions, followed swiftly by Mary. Asher would rather have breakfast when it suits him, and Peter, after much telling off from uh, Mum, Dad, Nan, Grandma, Mary, Asher, myself, decided that he should only pour enough to appease his appetite. And so the Cocoa Pops were eventually shared, more or less equally, between us all. And we learned that at the end of the day, it didn't matter. If we each respected each other's needs and wants, we could all walk away happy. Now, I'm not entirely certain this is blasphemy or not, but I want you to look at God as being a, bo a box of Cocoa Pops. Um, I understand it's difficult and that some of you may not wish to view uh, the Almighty uh, as, as such a menial form of food. But uh, for the sake of example, God is a box of Cocoa Pops. Now, I like Cocoa Pops. I, at the time, I wanted to keep the Cocoa Pops to myself. Likewise can be said of Mary, Ash and Peter. We couldn't share because we were young and we were silly, though admittedly I was old enough to know better. But I still wanted it for myself. If I were to be compared to Jonah uh, in this situation, we wouldn't see too many dissimilarities. <clears throat> he didn't want the Assyrians to know God. He didn't want to share God with the Assyrian nation. And much as God might say, share me, he didn't want to, even if it meant that they would die without having known him. If I like Cocoa Pops, don't I want other people to share what I like, so that they can understand why I like it, and they can then perhaps show other people why I like it? I'll take a more, uh, a better example. Cold in here, isn't it? Now, uh, I'm a, a really big film fan as a lot of you know. But I'm a big fan of the Little Gems. Now, the ones that are so good that it's amazing that people haven't seen them. I, I really like uh, The 39 Steps with Robert Powell and John Mills. Anyone seen that? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant film, isn't it? Uh, I, you know, I think it's such a cleverly made film that everyone should see it. But for many years, I would just sit and watch it all by myself. Fill my face with whatever food that we'd have stored at the house. Yeah, you know, it's the same with a lot of films I have or have seen. Arlington Road, anyone seen that? Yeah, Neville's Island, but none of you have seen that. The Rainmaker, Turk 182. Well, I think all these films and more are brilliantly made, but I can only appreciate them on one level if I'm the only person watching them. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've found that the best way to appreciate a film is to be able to watch it with other people, and then be able to talk about it afterwards. Quick example, a couple of weeks ago we had Tim and Catherine over. We watched The Life of David Gale. I've seen that about four or five times. You know, I know what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's a good film. But, you know, I'll sit there and I'll be really rather unemotional. Tim and Catherine are sitting there. And every ten minutes, they're trying to guess what's going to go on. And it's just brilliant watching them trying to figure it out. It brings a whole new perspective to it all for me. At this point, I would have a film clip from Roxanne. Have anyone seen Roxanne? Yeah, another good film. Um, and I was going to pull uh, another 
thought from the account. The idea that God is teaching us as evangelists and missionaries. God is number one, incredible, amazing, indescribable. God can do anything, so why did he insist that Jonah go to Nineveh? For the Ninevites? For God himself? Or was it for Jonah? Was it a learning curve? I was going to show you the, the, the clip, but like I say, it didn't work. The gist of it is that the chief fireman, CD, sends his inept fire crew out, there's about ten of them, he sends them out to, uh, to save a cat called Snowball from a tree. And uh, they all go out and they forget the truck and they, they come back, pick the truck up and they go and they, when CD gets there he finds that you know, three of them are hanging out in a tree like that and they're trying to reach this cat and nothing's happening. CD turns up, he pulls out some cat food and the cat just comes down its own accord and takes the cat food, job done. So here's a question to ponder. Why would CD, the chief fireman, send his fireman out to carry out a task that seems so difficult to him, but so simple to him? Why send them out at all if he could do it himself? Ultimately, it's because they need to learn. They could turn around and say, why bother going out today? You can do the job at a millionth of the effort we put in. But if that was the case, they would never become true firemen. And now that they've seen how the chief can, uh, can do it, they can learn from, uh, from their mistakes. And I think that that will go with many of us. You know, we need to be put through the test in, in many different areas of our lives. In order to accomplish God's will. But how does this relate to Jonah? I mean, he was a man of God from the start. Jonah believed that God would save Nineveh, whether he went or not. So why bother? To refer back to, to, what, to, to the Roxanne clip, if the cat was in the tree and the fireman chose not to go, should they rely on the chief to do the job? What would be the point in them? They'd become obsolete as firemen. Likewise, Jonah would become unnecessary to God's plans by his own choice in not going. And would the fire chief have done the job anyway? Would he have got the cat down without them? <coughs> Similarly, would God have destroyed Nineveh if Jonah or anyone else God asked to go chose not to? <coughs> Is it really a risk worth taking? Now, it says in the Bible that he saved 120,000 people 120,000 people, three days. But is it a risk worth taking? I mean, do we choose not to go and risk the chance that God might not save them after all? Despite his being, and I quote from chapter 4, verse 2, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You know, Jonah would have been responsible for the consequences of those deaths, of the deaths of 120,000 Ninevites. And so it goes with us. Not only are we saving lives, not only are we learning how to become more like Jesus, an obedient servant, but we're also taking on the role of the responsible Christian. God is teaching us and we need to be willing to learn, even if, like Jonah, we don't like the task. If Jesus had said to God, look Dad, I just don't think I can face flogging and execution and the weight of the world sins on my shoulders today. Look, can we just give it a miss? Where would we be? Jesus could say, look, who wants these people around? Hey, really? I mean, heaven's going to be overcrowded. They're going to nick the bone trying to... Look, why don't you, me, Moses, Holy Spirit, we'll, have, we'll, we'll let, leave them to it. We'll have a game of Monopoly or something. Would God still show his anger and wrath towards us? Here's another question. Which would you rather? God sending Jesus to die for us and holding ourselves the absolute certainty that we have that relationship with God through him and that we can receive eternal life in heaven through the crucifixion or 
had God sent Jesus to die for our sins and Jesus saying, no, I'd rather not. And just cling on to that sliver of hope that, uh, that God is merciful enough at the end time to say, I love you all too much to destroy you. Come on into heaven with me. And if he didn't, that would all smack Jesus back in the face. He'd have been held responsible for our deaths. But the former happened. And I only speak hypothetically about the latter. Because it was never ever going to be the case that Jesus wouldn't sacrifice himself for us. Jesus gave his life to save ours. And he's now the most celebrated person in the history of the world. Jonah's regarded as the stupid prophet who tried to run away. But grace allowed him to continue on God's path. By grace we can forget his sin and disobedience. It doesn't count. It's irrelevant. He saved 120,000 people in three days. That's a pretty mean feat in my books. I think that makes Jonah an incredible prophet. Unfortunately, much as we can forget his past, forget the whale, forget his running away, much as we can ignore all of that, we can't forget that he maintains these feelings and emotions in the final chapter. We've not much time for that now, but I, I just want to draw on the fact that Jonah, by the end of the book, still felt that he could contest God. He hasn't actually learned anything from this ordeal. Despite God's love and patience in his explanations, Jonah feels hard done by that God wouldn't take on board his advice or concerns. His heart has hardened towards the Ninevites, and as a result, his heart, heart has hardened towards God. Now, the book's left open to interpretation. We don't know if Jonah went on his own way or repented of his obnoxious behaviour or whatever. But I felt I had to mention it because it finishes off the book and it shows Jonah's full character, making us realise that Jonah wasn't amazing. You know, his, his disobedience to begin with was wiped off the slate when God showed his grace upon him. It then, in essence, is the story of a man who did what God asked and saved 20, 120,000 people in doing so. But the final chapter shows how he felt about it. He saved 120,000 people, sure. But did he do it out of love, or did he do it out of something else? You know, if Billy Graham, or Terry Virgo, or Louis Giglio, or whoever turned around and said, you know, I don't care so much about the people I preach to, as much as I do the power and authority I get for doing it. Or the wages I get. Or because I was made to. Yeah, we'd be gutted. All the lives that would change would be based on something so much more different and false than people originally believed. And some may even turn from God as a result. I mean, who knows? Similarly, Jonah may be preaching because he feels he has to. Not because he wants to. He may feel forced to do it. But if he truly accepted God for what he is, Jonah wouldn't find it in the least bit difficult to help save the lives of all these people. And it's a shame to think that Jonah was preaching repentance reluctantly to a nation that needed his, his, his help. And it's even more of a shame to think that he was so blinded by his own agenda that his relationship with God beyond this point is so vague. And my main message to you doesn't really involve this last chapter. Jonah's decisions were his own. We can only learn from it. But I want to focus on what God did for Jonah between his being vomited out and his preaching to the Ninevites. We're on the last leg. Keep with me. We're doing okay. I'd like to take these away with you this morning. Firstly, grace. On the day that God showed Jonah his unfailing grace and mercy, Jonah made the decision to save the life of 120,000 people. That is how powerful grace is. We all have insecurities here, myself included. We all sin. Sometimes we know it, sometimes we don't. Many of us, I should imagine mostly of the male variety, would rather tackle our insecurities by ourselves. In our own independent ways. And I'm not suggesting that women don't. But it seems to be an inbuilt thing with men. That we want to deal with it on our own. And this can make our burden so much more unbearable. If we can't 
figure out that the problem can be solved by talking with God. Colin said in his last preach that he and Carrie won't do anything unless God tells them to. And I think it's right to abide by that idea. I think we need to work on our own initiative sometimes because, you know, God's not going to tell us to mow the lawn or mop the kitchen floor. But um, I think, I think it's, uh, it's right that we need to rely on God more than perhaps we do. <clears throat> but in order to do that, we need to listen to God. And to do that, we really need to get into the habit of talking with God. Remember that grace allows you to have that personal conversation with him. If you choose not to talk to God because you don't want to, that's the problem you've got with God that needs fixing. If you don't want to talk to God because you feel your sin is weighing you down so much that you don't feel worthy enough to present yourself to him, then you're ignoring the biggest sacrifice ever made. You know, I've done it on several occasions. You think that you're not worthy of having that intimate relationship with God. That little voice in your head that says, you think that God's going to listen to you after all the evil things that you've done? No. That's putting your problems higher on your list of priorities than Jesus. He died on the cross for your sins, and by grace you are able to live your lives with pure heart, if only you choose to acknowledge it. The grace bestowed on Jonah was given by God at a time before Jesus sacrificed himself for you. And look at, look at the good that he did. Despite uh, Jonah's confusion and uncertainty and his ramblings in chapter 4, it transformed the lives of 120,000 people. And now we're living in an age where we can stand and say, Jesus sacrificed himself for me, that I may have a relationship with God. Jesus is the saviour of my soul, the ruler of heaven's kingdom, the keeper of my spirit, and, my God's, and by God's grace, sorry, through him, I am blameless of all my wrongdoing. I will not be burdened, I will not be crushed, because grace holds me fast, and it won't let go. My second point is choice. You know, our faith revolves around our choice to believe, our choice to commit to God. Like I said, we're able to live our lives with pure hearts if only we choose to acknowledge it. Choose to acknowledge the sacrifice that God gave in Jesus. Jonah made the choice to turn away from God initially and ended up worse off than he would have done if he'd just said, yep, yeah, okie dokie, nino, yeah, I'm there, no fear Shakespeare. Our lives revolve around choices. Do I wear the green shirt or the purple shirt? Do I take the car, do I walk? Do I help the man across the road, shall I watch? Do I give this charity worker money? Shall I leave it till another time? Shall I send this infuriating child out of the classroom? Or shall I make every effort to teach him the importance of the subject? Do I talk to God? Do I listen to God? Do I pray? Do I read the Bible? Do I do what he asks if he asks it? Do I like what he's doing? Or shall I tell him how I can make it better? Shall I just ignore him for the moment and get by on my own steam? I mean, we're all called to do something. And by choice, we need to do it. But I, for one, don't know what it is I'm to do. But when God tells me, not if, when... I will make the choice to do as he asks. And if I don't like it, I'm going to make the choice to come to you guys. And I hope that you'll make the choice to pray with me about it. That's what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? There's so much more to life than what we have at the moment. And it all comes back to God. And if we turn away from that, if we make that conscious choice to run away from, for whatever reason, whether it be fear or pride or whatever, if we turn away, we'll be missing out on the biggest adventure and the closest relationship we will ever embark upon and be a part of. And that's our choice. It's for us as individuals, it's for us as a church, it involves every single person in this room. No one is missed out from this fact. My final point is uh, communication with both God and the people around us. We're all Jonas, covered in grace. Some of us are aware of our task, some of us aren't. 
Some of us are going to need to uh, talk with God some more. Nearly all of us are going to need to listen more. There are things we'll not want to do. There are things we'll feel unable to do. There'll be people who we won't want to meet. And there'll be people who hurl abuse at us. There'll be people who beat us and mock us and choose to drive God out of what they would call their world. But until we stand tall and lead by example as followers of Christ and do what is right by God, then we'll always be running away. Remember daily God's grace on your life. Make the choice to talk to him, to listen to him and to do as he asks when he asks. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk.